Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning, we confess that you are worthy. You are worthy of worship and praise. As we gather this morning as your church, we lift your name, and we do worship you and you alone. And Heavenly Father, we pray now as we turn our attention to, the, to your word, that you would work through your word, that your spirit would take your word, that you would challenge us, that you would change us, that you would mold us in your image this morning. Accomplish your purposes, that you may be glorified as we open your word. Give me boldness and authority to proclaim the word of God with clarity and with authority this morning. May you be honored in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, as you can probably tell, we're beginning a series through the book of Hebrews. The translator of Calvin's commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews, Reverend John Owen, wrote this. No doubt the epistle next in importance to that, to the Romans, is this to the Hebrews. Other theologians have called Hebrews one of the most important books of the New Testament. So I must confess that it is not with a little intimidation this morning that I ask you to turn to Hebrews 1. My hope as I preach and hopefully your prayer as you listen is in the power of the Holy Spirit working through the living word of God. Although I am intimidated by Hebrews as I must confess at the same time, I recognize that it is my, not, not my cleverness to explain things that will make our series through Hebrews effective. It is the word of God that is quick and is powerful. And so I pray that as we study, as we learn from Hebrews together, that God would work for his glory. Launching into a book like Hebrews is like launching out on an expedition to climb a great mountain. It is with great humbleness and respect that you approach this mountain, and yet it's also with great excitement at what lies ahead. And so it is with great respect and with great excitement that we begin our journey this morning. There's several things to know about the book of Hebrews as we push off this morning. Several things that you might already be aware of. The author of Hebrews is unknown. The writer is anonymous. I should say the writer is anonymous. The author, we know, is the Holy Spirit. There's been much ink spilled throughout church history trying to identify the author or the writer of Hebrews. In fact, all the way back to the church father Origen in AD 185 to 253 is when he lived, and he famously said this, who wrote the epistle, truly only God knows. That was all the way back in the first and second century. So for a long time, no one has known. There are several good theories. Some have postulated that it was Paul, that it was Apollos, Luke, Clement of Rome, or Barnabas. There's evidence to back up each of those, and there's evidence to shut down each of those. The reality is we simply do not know. Not only are we not sure who wrote, Roman, who wrote Hebrews, 
It's also not exactly clear who Rome, who, why do I keep saying Romans? <laughs> who Hebrews was written to. It appears to be written primarily to a community uh, of Christians who are ethnic Jews, a Christian community of ethnic Jews. But where these Christians lived is unclear. Hebrews 13.24 seems to indicate uh, that, the he that Hebrews is written to a Jewish Christian community either in Rome or from Rome. Uh, Hebrews 13.24, the end of the book, there's just a passing comment. Uh, as the writer of Hebrews says, Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. Those from Italy greet you. So it seems either that he's in Italy writing back somewhere, most likely Jerusalem, and he's saying those with me from Italy are greeting you, or he's in somewhere, most likely Jerusalem, writing to Italy, saying those from Italy who live here now are greeting you. Uh, so that's kind of the two most likely written either from Rome or to Rome. We're not sure which. The time is A.D. 65 to 69, sometime before the destruction of the temple. We know from Hebrews 2, 3, another passage says, How shall we escape if we neglect a great, so great a salvation, which, is, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Confirmed to us by those who heard him. That seems to indicate that this is a second-generation group of Christians. These are not those who themselves sat under the ministry of Jesus, who heard themselves. They are not first-generation. They are second-generation. Also, later on in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews seems to indicate frustration with this audience because they have not grown, they have not progressed in their faith as they should. They still need the, the milk rather than the meat of the word, which seems to indicate that they should be further along. They are not baby Christians. So not only are they second generation Christians, but they are second generation Christians who should have progressed in their faith. There's other indications in the book that the setting is sometime before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. There's reference to the temple, to the practices that go on at the temple as if they are currently going on. So it has to be second generation Christians before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. The promise of persecution looms large and in light of that, the purpose of Hebrews is to encourage these Christians to remain faithful. There are passages throughout Hebrews that grab our attention. We hear about Melchizedek. There's talk about angels. There are these passages through Hebrews that, that grab our attention. But really, the, the meat of the book, there's five um, warning passages throughout Hebrews. And that's really the purpose of the book of Hebrews, to encourage, to encourage this group of Christians to remain faithful in light of coming persecution, in light of everything that is going on, remain faithful. Remain faithful.
As you jump into Hebrews, the author here does not start with any kind of introduction or greeting. He simply starts in verse 1, God, who at various times. He jumps right in. In fact, Hebrews 1, 1 1-4, our passage this morning, essentially summarizes the big point that the author is trying to get across in the book of Hebrews. And it's the simple fact that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. We'll see that in our passage this morning, and we'll see that all throughout the book of Hebrews. And so as we launch into this study this morning, the question is, so what? So what? Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. But what effect does the simple fact that Jesus is better have on the pressures of everyday life? To Christians who are living in a Roman-dominated world with the threat of persecution. What hope does that give us? Why does it matter that Jesus is better? What does it even mean that Jesus is better? What is he better than? This morning we're going to focus on the first three verses of Hebrews. As we look at this passage, we will see that those three words, that idea that Jesus is better, not only matters for the Christian, but it is everything. That is the hope that we cling to, that Jesus is better. First thing we see this morning in the first uh, verse and a half, verses 1 to 2a, is the proclamation of the Father. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. The author of Hebrews focuses on the shift from old to new, from law to grace. In Jesus, we have a better sacrifice, a better promise, and a better hope. And the author of Hebrews starts here at the very beginning with this comparison right off the bat. A simple fact in these three verses is that Jesus is better than the great prophets and the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Starts here with the fact that God has spoken. God has spoken. God who at various times and in various ways, as you look back at the Old Testament, we see that, do we not? That God spoke at various times and in various ways. In fact, MacArthur notes that the Old Testament was written over the course of possibly 1,800 years. It's recorded for us in 39 different books that reflect different historical times, locations, cultures, and situations. The Old Testament was not delivered on tablets all put together. Here it is. Rather, it was God speaking over the course of time through his prophets. God spoke in the form of dreams, visions, and theophanies. We find Jesus speaking through a burning bush, through a donkey, through an angel. And yet all of it finds its source in God. It is God who has spoken. 
And I do not think that we should move quickly past that. It's easy for us to to kind of jump in and to get excited about what lies ahead, but stop and meditate on that for a second, the fact that God has spoken. God. He is not distant or aloof. He has spoken. Through time and history, he has reached down to his people, and God has spoken. At various times and various ways, he spoke to the fathers by the prophets. The focus here is not only on the books of the Bible that we identify as the prophets, but on all of Old Testament revelation. God, in his wisdom, progressively revealed his word in his perfect time and in his way. God has spoken. All of the books of the Old Testament are God's speaking. You have his promises in the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenants. God has spoken. These prophets through whom God spoke are greatly revered in Judaism. In fact, you may remember we just finished going through John not that long ago. In John 8.53, the Jews challenge Jesus, and they say this. Now we know that you have a demon. You are greater than our, are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself to be? As Jesus is challenging their traditions, they say, hold on a second. Do you think that you are better than Abraham? Do you think that you are better than the prophets? These prophets, these men through whom God has spoken, these are great men through history, and they are greatly revered. And yet the answer to that question is that Jesus is the Son of God, and he is infinitely greater than the prophets. He is infinitely greater than Abraham. And in fact, that is the point that the author of Hebrews goes on to make here in the first three verses of Hebrews. The fact that the the Father has spoken... In times past, in various ways, through the Son, or through the prophets, the Father has spoken, and yet He doesn't stop there. He's spoken by His Son as well. In these last days, He spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Last days. Just that phrase alone signifies a change. See, in a Jewish understanding of the last days, grounded in the Old Testament, the last days begin with the coming of the Messiah. That is what they are looking forward to. That is what they are longing for. The fact that the author of Hebrews uses that word in these last days signifies right from the beginning that there has been a significant shift in history. Something has happened where we have moved from the times past to the last days. 
The coming of Jesus signifies the dawning of a new day. The change in time from former days to last days. And it's the result of God's better revelation in Jesus Christ. The last days are better than the former days because Jesus is better than the prophets. That's the comparison that we are seeing here. In fact, just this week, I was looking at a, uh, a program for my computer. And there's two possible programs that do the same thing. And so there's a website that you can go to that takes these two programs and sits them beside each other. And you can look at them and you can compare them. Does this program do this? You can see what each one does and which one is better. That's in essence what, this, what, the, what the author of Hebrews is doing for us. He is setting up two things. The prophets of old and Jesus. And he is comparing them. Which one is better? Notice also the comparison here. You have in times past and in these last days by the prophets, by his son, to the fathers, to us. The God who has spoken in times past has spoken again. And this revelation is better. And yet also note that this revelation is better in Jesus Christ, in the son, not because the source of the revelation is better. It is still God who has spoken. But because of the one through whom God spoke. He is God's son. Therefore, he is God. And yet to avoid any confusion, the author of the Hebrews now goes on to clarify exactly what it is that makes the son superior to the prophets. He doesn't just make this statement that, that he has spoken by the son and that is better than when he spoke by the prophets. And expect us to just accept it. He now goes on in verses 2b to 3 to sow to show the superiority of the Son. What is it that makes him better? He goes on here to list seven traits that make the Son superior. The Son is better because. And these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. That's the first point. The Son is better because he is the heir of all Thanks. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary, notes that the Son is the heir of all things, which echoes the promise given to the Davidic king in Psalm 2.8, where he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. The fact that the Son is the heir of all things communicates his identity not only as God's Son, but also as David's son. He is the Messiah, the promised one, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to David and to Israel. This is the one for whom we've looked. This is the one for whom we've longed. This is the one who brings the last days. This is the one in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. This is the Son of God, and He is superior. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the prophets looked forward to. So he's better than the prophets. He doesn't stop there. He's the heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. 
He's not just the heir of all things. He is creator. This looks also not only to his power as creator, but to his eternality as the son of God. Again, we just finished John. As John proclaimed in John 1, 1 1-3, all things were made through him. In the beginning was the word. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that once made. He is the creator. The prophets were created. He is superior to the prophets. Through whom he made the worlds. He goes on. The third trait that makes a son superior is the fact that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. You see, the best that the prophets could do was to speak of God's glory. The best example that you have is Moses, who comes down from Sinai and he reflects God's glory. But the Son does not only reflect God's glory or speak of God's glory, He Himself radiates God's glory because He Himself is God. He is the radiance of the glory of God, it radiates from Him. He is the exact imprint of His nature. Thus, in John 14 9, Jesus proclaims, He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's a thought to pause on for a second. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. In the sun, the radiance of the glory of God. I'm thinking about returning to this passage uh, come Christmas time. That's a thought that just struck me this, this week as I was studying this passage. That baby in a manger is the radiance of the glory of God. What a thought. What a thought. The exact imprint of his nature in Mary's arms. The Son of God come to us. God has not only spoken, he has spoken clearly. He has sent the best one to speak. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is superior to the prophets because he is the heir of all things, because he is the creator, because he himself is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he is the sustainer. He did not create and then leave. He's not only creator, he is sustainer. It's the idea of, of carrying creation forward to God's completed, ordained purpose. He is actively upholding creation. It's not passive. He is actively at work in creation. Upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things by his word. What a powerful God. It doesn't stop there. But when he himself 
purged our sins, when he had by himself purged our sins. He's the heir of all things. He is creator. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He is the sustainer of creation. And yet he himself purged our sins. He is Savior. He himself. Again, meditate on that thought. That the Son of God himself, the radiance of the glory of God, the creator of the worlds, the sustainer of creation, he himself took on the form of a baby and submitted himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He himself purged our sins. He himself paid our penalty. In fact, we'll see as we move forward into Hebrews that the Son shed his blood for the sins of the world, even the sins of the prophets, through his vicarious death and resurrection, his death in my place for my sin. He himself purged our sins. I have a hard time moving past that thought. As you work your way through chapter, through these three verses, there is such a glorious picture of this sun that has been built that it's almost shocking that he himself, this God, who, this son who radiates the glory of God, he himself humbled himself. He is sustainer, he is savior. Sixth, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He himself purged our sins. Then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the first reference to Psalm 110 that we see here in Hebrews. Psalm 110 is a verse that we will, uh, it's a chapter, it's a psalm that we will return to regularly through the book of Psalms. I think it's something like 13 times that it appears. Specifically, the first three verses of Psalm 110. For the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. This so is the first reference as the victorious son is seated at the right hand of the father on his throne in heaven. None of the prophets are seated at the right hand of the father on the throne in heaven. It is the son, the radiance of the glory of God, who is seated at the right hand of the father. And finally, verse seven, or verse, uh, the end of, end of verse 4. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. It's as if the, the writer of Hebrews has clearly sufficiently made his point that Jesus is better than the prophets. And so he moves on to something greater. He is better than even the angels themselves. He has a better name. The son is superior than the prophets. In fact, as you work your way through 
the book of Hebrews, that's going to be something that comes up time and time again. The Son is superior than the prophets. The Son is superior to angels. The Son is superior to Abraham and to Moses. He's superior to Aaron and the Old Testament um, priesthood. He is superior to the hope of the law. The hope in him is superior than the hope of the law. He is superior. About two hours from where I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, is Linville Caverns in Linville, North Carolina. In fact, I think it was Jim who just went this, uh, this past week, he was telling me, went to visit some caves. The Linville Caverns is a vast cave system in the North Carolina mountains. And one summer, my family took a trip up to the Linville Caverns. And I remember as we, as we descended deeper and deeper into the earth, it grew darker and darker. To the point where even our tour guides, strong flashlights seemed to only make a dent in the looming darkness. I remember I was towards the back of the line, and by the time I got there, it was dark again. <laughs> I could just see the light up in the distance. You're sticking to this path because you can't see what is around you. You can just see right in front of you. In fact, as we got to the deepest point that we could go on our tour, our tour guide actually told us, he's like, for a second, I'm going to turn off the light so you can just see how dark it really is. And when she turned off that light and paused for a few seconds, you saw how overwhelmingly dark it really was. This was not a darkness that your eyes could adjust to. You couldn't see your hand right in front of your face. It was probably the darkest place that I've ever been in my life. And yet as we climbed back to the surface, and we got near the entrance, and the sun flooded the entrance of the cave with light, our tour guide's flashlight became unnecessary. It was unnecessary compared to the sun it's not that her flashlight was bad. It had a purpose. And it served that purpose well. I was thankful for it in the depths of the earth. But the sun is simply far superior and far more powerful to that flashlight. The flashlight had a purpose. It was a good thing. And it served that purpose well. But the presence of the sun was vastly superior than the light provided by that flashlight. You see, the author of Hebrews this morning is not trying to say that the prophets were pointless, that they were bad compared to the Son of God. In fact, much of the author of Hebrews, much of his argument in this book will be based off of what those prophets said in the Old Testament. He's not saying that that was bad. The point is not that the Old Testament is useless in light of God's revelation in the Son. The point is that the Son of God is simply infinitely superior to the prophets. The contrast here is not between good and bad, between good and best. The Son is the best revelation of the Father. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He is infinitely superior. And as we work our way through the book of Hebrews, 
The author of Hebrews will take that fact and he will use that fact to call us to faithfulness. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than that old system of Judaism that you came out of. So be faithful. Jesus is better than anything that the world promises. So be faithful. Jesus is better than anything that you can cling to, than any works that you can do. Jesus is better. So be faithful and cling to him. In fact, even this week, be encouraged by this fact that Jesus is infinitely superior. So be faithful because your Savior is better. Jesus is better. Cling to that hope. Don't look to your works. Don't look to anything else. Cling to Jesus. For he and he alone is better.